Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning and we trust that you are here in our midst. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. In many ways, I think it's ironic that faith is such a central concept for Christians when we see that faithlessness is so pervasive among them. Do you follow what I mean there? If you were to ask people who weren't Christians what Christians are like or what word to describe them, I think you, you, you know, after you got sort of the um, holier-than-thou hypocrisy stuff and after you got the people who act like they're supposed to act stuff, you'd, you'd get to people talking about Christians as people who have faith, who believe in things that are hard to believe. When I talk to people who are not Christians, the most common reason they give for not being Christian is that to be a Christian, you have to believe in this or that or the other thing, and I just can't. In other words, they're saying, I don't have enough faith to be a Christian, which is, like I said, ironic. It's ironic because one of the major things we're supposed to have faith about Jesus having risen from the dead on Easter is so saturated, we see, in the New Testament with doubt and faithlessness and unbelief. We talked at length last week on Easter Sunday, no less, about the faithlessness of Peter. And today, we're going to talk about the faithlessness of Thomas. Faithlessness is all over the place. I have good news, though. A shaky faith does not mean that you're not a Christian. Not in the least. In fact, it puts you right in line with the disciples. The New Testament is full of shaky faith. So Thomas isn't there when Jesus first shows up to the disciples. And when they all tell him that Jesus is risen, that he's come back to visit them and shown them his wounds, Thomas refuses to believe it. He says that he won't believe until he can put his fingers in the nail marks in Jesus' hands and put his hand in the spear wound in Jesus' side. Only then will he believe. Now, Thomas gets for this a pretty bad rap, right? He's a saint, St. Thomas, but he doesn't get the St. Paul or St. Peter Treatment. He's not even the first St. Thomas that you think of. That's actually St. Thomas Aquinas. Most churches that are called St. Thomas are named after Thomas Aquinas, not this Thomas. This Thomas does get a nickname, all right, uh, but it's not a real winner. Uh, Doubting Thomas, that one you know, will really make your parents proud. I can, I can just imagine Thomas's parents in the retirement home. You know, what does your son do? Oh, he's a saint of the Christian church. Oh, cool. You're Thomas Aquinas' parents? 
Uh, no, <laughs> doubting Thomas. Like, somebody's not getting invited to shuffleboard later, right? And so it goes. Our, our natural inclination is to avoid the fate of Thomas. We don't want to be doubting so-and-so. We're going to buckle down, ball up our fists, and resolve not to be like Thomas. We are going to have faith. And at first, that's what it seems like this Thomas story is all about. Jesus, when he does show up, tells Thomas very clearly, do not doubt, but believe. And so the story of Thomas becomes this cautionary tale. Don't be a doubter like Thomas, or Jesus will call you into the principal's office. But remember last week. Remember that long story we told of Peter. Peter, the one who was so faithless in the end that he denied knowing Jesus three times after, immediately after promising that he would die for him rather than abandon him. The same Peter, though, who was named by that young man outside the empty tomb. Go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you to Galilee just as he promised. Peter, the promise breaker, the guy who said, even if I have to die, I'll never abandon you, is singled out by Jesus who is the promise keeper. The faithless one is met by the faithful one. So what does this mean? Guess what? If you want Jesus to single you out, if you want Jesus to have a personal message for you, it seems like according to the New Testament, the only prerequisite for that is faithlessness, is doubt. Now don't freak out. I'm not telling you to be faithless. Or suggesting that faithlessness is a good thing. I'm simply making a diagnosis. We, you and I, are often faithless. We doubt. The story of Thomas isn't a cautionary tale for the same reason that the story of Peter isn't one. It's far too late for us to talk about not being like Peter, or not being like Thomas. We are like Peter. We are like Thomas. We doubt. Their stories are our stories. We are so often the faithless ones. Now, it's possible that you're sitting in your chair thinking that this is depressing, but it's not over yet. It's only depressing if you don't listen to the next part. If the sermon ended here, it would be a total Bummer, you're faithless. Amen. (laughs) But I have good news. We talked last week about the greatest message left in the history of the world. A young man outside an empty tomb, which is empty, of course, because Jesus has kept his promise and has risen from the dead, who tells the women to go tell the disciples and Peter that though they are promise breakers, Jesus will be a promise keeper. This is the greatest message in the history of the world. And they didn't have voicemail or email back then, so the Lord had to use mystical young men. But the thrust is the same. Imagine waking up every morning to a message from God. Just remember, it says, 
I will keep my promises, even though you break yours. What a gospel. What good news. And that's what church is, by the way, a weekly message in your inbox. Though you, once again, have been a promise breaker, Jesus will and always will be your promise keeper. Hear his word. Consume his body and blood. Remember what he has accomplished for you. In our story about Thomas, Jesus again comes directly to the one who doubts. He comes directly to the faithless one. Thomas says that he won't believe until he puts his finger in the wounds in Jesus' hands and puts his hand into the spear mark in Jesus' side. Does Thomas get in trouble for his lack of faith? I don't think so. Instead, he gets a command performance. Jesus comes back. Jesus shows up. He comes to the faithless one. This is profoundly good news for those like you and me who wake up each morning with something a little less than a robust faith. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Now, I've just spent ten minutes or so calling everyone in this room faithless, just like Thomas and Peter, and just like me. And now we've got Jesus walking into the room saying, Do not doubt, but believe. Do not doubt, but believe. Uh, Thanks a lot, Jesus. (laughs) I would if I could. Uh, That's not such a helpful commandment to hear for us, is it? Jesus requires a lot of things from his followers, but this might be the hardest one of all. He He commands us to feed the hungry, to have perfect and unconditional love of God and of neighbor. He says that if your hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off. He says to make disciples of all nations. And here, Jesus seems to be commanding Thomas, and by extension us, to have faith. Now surely Jesus has gone too far this time. If faith was something that I could gin up in myself, I would. I would be faithful all the time. I would never doubt. I wish I could make myself have faith. I'd be a lot less worried about my future. If I could have faith that I'm raising my children in the right way. If I could have faith that my friends like me as much as I like them. If I could create faith in myself, I'd be a lot less worried about everything. But faith seems to be one of those things that we can't just create in ourselves. We either have it or we don't. We have faith that when someone says, it's not you, it's me. We actually believe that or we don't. We have faith that when someone says, I love you, they actually mean it. We have faith 
that Jesus actually rose from the dead on Easter. Or, like Thomas, we don't. And of course, the worst thing you can say to somebody who doesn't have faith is, have faith. Just trust. It's like if someone is in a bad mood, the worst thing you can say is, cheer up. Stop being in such a bad mood. But that seems to be exactly what Jesus says to Thomas. Don't doubt. Believe. Have faith. Telling the faithless to have faith is the worst thing you can do. Unless you are Jesus Christ. Unless you're the son of Almighty God who commanded light and darkness, dry land and sea to come into being with a word. Jesus is telling Thomas to believe is exactly like God saying, let there be light. It is a creative word. He is creating faith in Thomas where there was none before. And he does this by walking into that room with nail marks in his hands and a spear wound in his side and offering them to Thomas, the one who doubts. And so, of course, Thomas, who has now had faith created in him, says, my Lord and my God. Jesus, wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, walks into the room and goes straight to the faithless one, straight to you, straight to me. He holds out his hands. Put your fingers here. He offers his side. Put your hands here. By his wounds, he gives us faith. Faith itself is a gift from Jesus to you. Christ is faithful when we are faithless. He is a promise keeper when we are promise breakers. He is perfect when we are sinful. And his wounds are a symbol of that good news. That he has given all of that, that faithfulness, that promise keeping, that perfection to us and taken the punishment for sin onto himself. Jesus, though human like us, is our opposite in many ways. We are faithless. He is faithful. We break our promises. He keeps his. We are broken sinners. He is the perfect son of God. And there's one more way in which he is our opposite. And it means everything. He is wounded and we are healed. In his wounds is your faithfulness. In his wounds is your promise keeping. In his wounds is your perfection. And in his wounds is your salvation. Amen.